Accidents are an unavoidable fact of life. Or are they? In this podcast, we discuss current events through one personal injury lawyer's perspective. In each episode, we'll focus on one event and attempt to answer the oftentimes not-so-simple question, who's to blame? I'm your host, Jonathan Ratchik. This podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Kramer and Levy and Ratchik PLLC and is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you think you might have a lawsuit, you should contact an attorney. January 6, 2021. A day that will go down as one of the darkest in American history. Thousands of supporters of President Trump assembled outside the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., to object to Congress's certification of Senator Biden's Electoral College victory and stop what they view as a stolen election. What happens next is heartbreaking. Breaching security, supporters of the president storm the building and invade the Capitol itself until, outside the House chambers, they are met by armed guards. In the melee that follows, all captured on video, one of the protesters, 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt, an Air Force veteran who had flown all the way from California to join the protests, is shot in the neck as she attempts to climb through a broken window. Pending a joint investigation by the Metropolitan Police Department and the U.S. Capitol Police, the officer who shot Mrs. Babbitt has since been placed on administrative leave. The Department of Justice also announced that its Civil Rights Division was opening an investigation into Mrs. Babbitt's death and whether the officer's use of deadly force was justified. In this episode of The Blame Game, we're not going to wade into the pool of partisan politics and debate who won or lost the last presidential election. Instead, we're going to try to answer the question of who, if anyone, is responsible for Mrs. Babbitt's tragic death. And to help us answer these questions, we turn to respected legal analyst Paul Callen. A former prosecutor and deputy chief of homicide in the Brooklyn DA's office, Mr. Callen is best known for representing the estate of Nicole Brown Simpson in the civil lawsuit against O.J. Simpson. He now focuses his practice on civil actions involving wrongful imprisonment, wrongful convictions, and sexual abuse. Mr. Callan is also a regular legal analyst on CNN and all the major news networks. Hi, Paul. Welcome to The Blame Game. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Jonathan. You're very welcome. So what are your thoughts, Paul, on what just happened uh, on Capitol Hill? I think we're all trying to get our, our, uh, our heads around it. I really think it's a, a, a such a tragic blow to American democracy. I mean, we're we're still a young democracy, uh, given uh, you know the the length of time that we've been in operation compared to uh, I guess the history of civilization. And uh, this is really one of the worst things. I mean, other than the Civil War, I suppose, or the War of eighteen twelve, that's that's happened to us. Uh, it's a tragedy, and. Um, I think it's directly directly attributable to President Trump and his inflammatory rhetoric, uh, and it's it's going to be really tough to recover from this attack uh, on the Capitol. Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly taken us uh, taking us all for a loop. I mean it's I don't think it's anything any of us have ever experienced, um, you know, in this century or last century. Um, yeah, that's right. You've got to go back, I think, as far as the War of eighteen twelve before you. Uh, you confront a situation where there's been an active attempt to uh, occupy the Capitol. 
And um, it's amazing. We even got through the Civil War without something like this happening. We even got through things like the presidency of Andrew Jackson, where, you know, people used to hang around in the White House looking for jobs. It was that way under Lincoln as well. There was a very uh, informal policy about allowing citizens to enter or uh, the places where we make our laws. Uh, and uh, even through all of those years, nothing like this happened. So I, I think it's a real tragedy for the for the country. It's going to be a real hard thing to recover from. And certainly going to require someone who can uh, build bridges and not just uh, burn them down. Absolutely. So, you know, what the focus that I really want to do on today's episode, and because, you know, we could probably talk, um, you know, ad nauseum about, you know, the state of politics in the United States right now. But you know, what rights, you know, one of the things that I think that made what happened on Capitol Hill, you know, so tragic was there was, you know, a loss of life, you know, several people lost their lives in the, uh, you know, in the events that unfolded, including, I think, I think we're up to five now. That was the latest. I think that five. There was a police officer, maybe some of the protesters, including, and, you know, the one of which is, which is the focus of this episode was a, uh, an Ashley Babbitt who had flown in from California, um, who was shot and killed as she was trying to breach the, the house chambers through a broken window. So what what constitutional rights does someone, I guess just theoretically, um, does someone like Mrs. Mrs. Babbitt have in a situation like this? Well, uh, you know, her death was really a tragic death. And uh, the, uh, you know, I think she was an Air Force. Uh, yeah, an Air Force veteran. Air, Air Force veteran. And um, I'm sure when she came to this demonstration, she had no idea that this is how, things could have ended for her but, but so it's a tra- it's a, it's a tragedy of course it's a tragedy for the the other individuals who died as well many who were law enforcement officers so the rights that she would have though as a citizen of the United States of course the constitution gives you the right to assemble and uh, you certainly have the right to protest under the US constitution but you sure. also have the right to life under the constitution and US laws and she, if, if she gets a lawyer to take her case, or I should say if her estate gets a lawyer to take the case, mm-hmm. um, they would be asserting that she suffered a loss of life as a result of uh, governmental misconduct through the Capitol policeman who fired the deadly shot. So I guess when it comes to, you know, it comes to holding someone legally accountable for her, for her death, you know, where does someone start out? Do they look, I guess, I assume they look to the officer first, you know, who fired the shot, no? Yes, they... They first would look at the officer who fired the shot, and what they're looking for in that instance is a federal officer can only use deadly physical force, uh, which this is obviously, in situations where there's an imminent threat to uh, his life or the lives of other people that uh, he is uh, defending. Um, But essentially, the officer has to be able to show that he either he or others that he is protecting are in imminent danger uh, from the person who uh, they who uh, suffers the deadly physical force. Well, that, and that's what I'm wondering. I mean, was the use of it was the use of deadly force justified under these circumstances? And the reason I'm wondering that is because I don't look. I don't know what that police officer is seeing on the other side of the door. I mean, you can see him on the video that there's a gun drawn on the other side of the door. But, you know, there were two officers who had what appeared to be semi-automatic machine guns on the other side of the door who were keeping the crowd under control. So I'm wondering, 
you know, would a reasonable officer in his, standing in his shoes have thought that the use of excessive force was justified or necessary? I th- you certainly could make that argument that given the level of backup available to him uh, in his position, that there was no reasonable danger uh, that he, he, the officer, would lose his life or that others might lose their life or become seriously injured if this young woman uh, managed to enter. However, and I think you touched on this when you uh, first started asking the question, we don't know at the precise moment that he fires the shot what he knew about who was behind him. That was This was a fast-moving situation with literally thousands of demonstrators trying to breach the defenses of the Capitol. And I'm sure on the inside, it was a fast moving situation too, with people having to move from place to place to, to guard various chambers mm-hmm. uh, in the building. Well, certainly it's always, it's always different, certainly playing Monday morning quarterback when we can look at a situation and dissect it frame by frame and, sl- and slow everything down and you know point to, um, to shortcomings. I'm, certain, I'm, certain, I'm sure it's probably different you know, when everything is happening in real time. It's very, very different. And one of the things that I've noticed in uh, cases I've handled personally as a lawyer and also some of the things that I've covered uh, on television as a legal analyst, and and that is when you look, when you go back to the videotape, uh, you can reach the wrong conclusion very easily if you just look at a snippet of an incident. But then you get a second film taken from a different angle. And you might find that the, the guys that you're talking about with submachine guns were looking in a different direction because there were other dangers and threats being posed to them. And they might not have been in a position to give this officer sufficient backup. So you really have to have all of the evidence and all of the video before you can reach a conclusion one way or the other as to whether the use of deadly force was justified. Well, I, I read one comment from one forensic criminolo- criminologist that saying that, you know, Enter, trying to enter into the house chambers standing, you know, in and of itself without anything else, you know, was not enough to justify the use of deadly force under these circumstances. Well, that's correct. And as a matter of fact, there's been case law that from the Supreme Court that has said you can't ju- you, you can't use deadly physical force just to protect property. Not it's not it's not permissible. So if this use was merely because he was trying to protect the capital from being damaged. It would be an improper use. Correct. You can't, you can't shoot someone if they're defacing a statue or a painting. No, no, you can't use deadly physical force in that situation. But here, this officer's defense will be, no, that's not why I fired my weapon. I fired my weapon because I thought that this crowd was trying to get at the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, or possibly the Vice President. Mm-hmm. Uh, All of the major leaders uh, of the legislative branch were in the building at that time, discussing, of all things, the presidential election and whether the vote count could be certified or not. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt that uh, those people were all in danger if I, uh, you know, if I allowed this woman to uh, to enter the premises. And and that's how it'll go down in a courtroom. And I, I think as a result, technically, maybe a lawyer would bring the case and Possibly a court would let the case stand through discovery, but the possibility of winning it in front of a jury, Jonathan, I think is very, very well, cer- difficult. Certainly a D.C. jury would be a very difficult case to prevail. And they're not going to be at all sympathetic to demonstrators favoring Donald Trump, who's not too popular among citizens I see here. Now, what about, 
I, under, I understand it's an, it's an uphill battle, you know, to win any type of, you know, wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of uh, Mrs. Babbitt. But don't, I mean, don't you think, though, that the officer who's on the other side, do they have any duty to at least uh, to warn the, the protesters that if this is a line in the sand, anybody who crosses this, who tries to get in, they're going to get shot? Yes, they do. They do have such a duty. Uh, as a matter of fact, under the the use of force. And I, and I only and I only ask that because it's not like this is the person was shot as soon as they entered into the Capitol building. You know, they entered into the Capitol, went up staircases, hundreds of other hundreds of other people without you know re- meeting any meaningful resistance. Why is it now that we're getting through this door? Now she's shot. Well, I think, first of all, you have to say um, there are a lot of things going on in a lot of different places. I mean, the Capitol is a huge place. And from the video that I've seen, these demonstrators were uh, attacking the building from a variety of different vantage points. And I have no way of knowing what Miss Babbitt knew about what was going on in other parts of the building. Uh, maybe she just made a straight arrow toward this window and tried, tried to get through. On that question that that you started with, uh, did he have an obligation to warn her? There's a federal statute that says when reasonably possible, such a warning should be given. And uh, it also says that no warning shots should ever be fired. So I think the officer's attorneys will assert that uh, this was a very fast moving situation and um, he didn't have time to give uh, a warning. Uh, and, and no warning was probably necessary because his weapon was displayed and they had been shouting at people trying to enter the building to back off. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that defense would, would prevail uh, in, a, uh, in a case against the officer. Now, other, other than perhaps the officer, who else, and again, putting aside the difficulties in, that the case you know, inherently has, who else could be held potentially legally responsible for what happened? Any, any possibility that perhaps you know, the Capitol, the police department. Yeah, my understanding has always been that a police department isn't uh, vicariously liable for an officer's violations of someone's civil rights. You need to bring what's called, I believe, a Monell claim against the municipality or against the government. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people would be surprised to hear this, but you're absolutely right about that. Individual officer can be held responsible for violating somebody's constitutional rights, but the government that an agency that employs him can only be found liable if they have a policy or procedures that enabled and encouraged uh, this type of unlawful behavior. And it's very difficult to prove that. So a lot of these cases get thrown out on that ground Mm -hmm. and uh, as against the government, like if you're suing the government of the United States or if it was a local case, the city of New York. Even though they're uh, defending the police officer anyway. Yeah. But you see, and the problem, the problem you have ultimately is if, if you're bringing a case like this, hoping to win a large damage award from the jury, if, you, if you're just suing an individual police officer, he, he may not have anything in the way of assets or minimal assets to pay such a judgment. And in the end, we're talking about a civil case here, really recovering something is the reason you bring the, you bring the case. So I think the prospect of a big recovery here might be might be limited because of that. Doctrine. Although I always understood that the that the municipality, even though they might not technically be responsible for the individual officers' actions, ultimately indemnify them for any uh, judgments entered against them. Well, the um, this this varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, the uh, and and I will tell you from cases that I've been involved with in New York, uh, wrongful 
conviction and civil rights litigation in New York, even in New York, where they ultimately tend to back the cop in the end, mm-hmm. uh, the the state tends to torture the attorney representing the victim, putting him through sometimes years of discovery process mm-hmm. before they will come in and say, yes, we're, we're going to indemnify the officer here and, and therefore the victim. So uh, a lot of times you have to litigate most of the case before you even know if the municipality or the governmental agency involved is going to be there as the big pocket to uh, pay out the verdict in the case. And so a lot of lawyers are very reluctant to get involved in cases like this. And this case in particular, I think, because of the controversy uh, involved in it and because this attack on the Capitol uh, I, I don't think will ever be viewed favorably by the public in general. Certainly, or, or a difficult no, case to bring. Good reason to do this. Uh, so I think it's this case is always going to be a very difficult case for the Bobbitt family uh, to win. Now, what about? I know there's been a lot of talk about how the president was uh, responsible for what happened on the Capitol that day, and I think you know as we're going to broadcast, articles of impeachment were recently introduced in the House against the President Trump. Uh, for inviting the protesters who stormed the Capitol building. Does does the president himself have any legal exposure for what happened to Mrs. Babbitt? That's an interesting question, Jonathan. And I um, the reason I ask that is because I, you know, I looked at the statute for, you know, inciting a riot. And I know there's a you know, there are criminal penalties for doing so. But I didn't see in the statute. And again, putting aside whether he did or he didn't, I didn't see any I didn't see that it created any civil rights or, you know, gave rise to a civil cause of action for someone who did that. Well, there, there, there are two possibilities of the president being pulled into this case as somebody who was responsible. Uh, the first would be you'd have to show that he uh, was a co-conspirator in a pre-planned attempt to attack the Capitol building. I'm not so sure you'd be able to establish that against Trump. The mm-hmm. and, and the second theory, of course, is the theory that his words were so improper and so inf- and the rhetoric was so inflammatory that he caused the crowd to, you know, attack the Capitol building. Correct. Now, I think if you look at his speech and and I think in fairness, if you look at some speeches that he made in the days leading up to when the, when this demonstration was being planned, his rhetoric was completely improper and was totally inflammatory. And on when he gave the speech, even he talked about that he was going to join the marchers as they went. But isn't there a difference march- between marching on the Capitol versus invading the Capitol? Well, there is, except, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani had warmed the crowd up by saying that they would have that we would have to have trial by combat, mm-hmm. uh, which you could suggest that was it was suggesting a physical attack of some kind. Don Jr. Uh, made uh, statements that were uh, clearly inflammatory. And um, I don't know. I think when you put the whole package together, it, it was an incendiary speech. But that wouldn't necessarily give this young woman's survivors a cause of action. Because remember, she joined in the, she was, she was a co-conspirator mm-hmm. in the attack on the Capitol. So I don't think she would be permitted to sue uh, for the fact that the president had incited her to attack the Understood. Capitol. That's not going to give her a case. And um, 
and of course, uh, Trump is going to be impeached undoubtedly for for his role in it. But now, I I understood, you know, based upon what we've talked about so far, that any law, you know, any lawsuit that uh, Mrs. Babbitt's estate would bring would certainly ha- it would be an uphill battle, um, you know, to survive a motion for summary judgment and maybe even an impossible hurdle to actually convince, you know, a civil jury that. Um, you know, that the police officer was not justified in um, using deadly physical force. Putting all that aside, <laughs> which is a lot to put aside, but, yes. you know, assuming that she had a viable claim, you know, for the violation of her constitutional rights and for wrongful death, you know, what type of damages could her estate be expected to recover in any type, in any such lawsuit? This case is a wrongful death lawsuit, and uh, the rules differ from state to state on what kind of damages can be recovered. And I think most people would be surprised that, uh, for instance, you can't recover for the grief of having lost the person who died. And that's such a big thing. You know, if you, it's the biggest, if it's arguably wife, the biggest thing. Yeah. You lose your wife, you lose your daughter. Uh, it's a, it's a huge thing, but, uh, the statute here limits really to, uh, lost income that she would have earned had she, had she survived. And, um, so, so I think the prospect of, Recovering an enormous amount of money, even if you could make out a case, is is pretty limited here. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, from what I've, you know, from my own research, you know, I know Mrs. Babbitt was married, but she had no children. So, you know, the loss of parental guidance, which oftentimes can be a, you know, a large item of recovery in a wrongful death lawsuit, just isn't there. My understanding is that she ran a, you know, she ran a pool cleaning company outside San Diego. Arguably, the ink, I'm assuming, you know, the money that she earned from that all went to uh, the support of herself and her spouse. So, you know, she's what, 35 years old, another 30 years of income. Yes. Yeah. And that would be recoverable. But and I yes. Guess- yes, that would be recoverable. And and I will say also, there's I don't see a recovery here of what we call punitive damages. And those are the damages that send a message. Correct. Um, well, you can't get punitive paid. damages against a municipality anyway. So, yeah. So you would, well, you could bring it against the officer Correct. individually, but because the officer wouldn't have enough assets available to pay the judgment, it wouldn't be wor- really worth much money at all. And, so. and you wouldn't be sending much, much of a message either. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. And it's likely, by the way, that a jury would say, um, this is not a send a message case because she she was trying to break into the Capitol and we don't know why. And um, I, I think it'd be very, very hard to collect punitive damages in a case like this. And what about for conscious pain and suffering? My understanding is that's always an element of damages in, in any wrongful death case. Yes, it is. But you have, of course, you have to be able to prove that the person in question did suffer conscious pain and suffering. Now, we don't have the medical records and we don't know enough about her death at this point to know whether she was conscious or in pain for an extensive period of time or whether she died almost instantly as a result of the shot. But certainly if she, if she was conscious and she was in pain, that is something that could be recovered uh, in a case like this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how much consciousness someone's going to have after getting shot in the neck. And my understanding is that by the time paramedics arrived, I think her eyes were already closing. And yeah, I think it's a tough case to, to establish uh, 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 conscious pain and suffering for any lengthy period. Well, Paul, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today. It has been a pleasure and incredibly insightful. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate being invited as a guest. And uh, let's hope the country can recover from this horrible January 6th incident that I think uh, is going to go down in American history as uh, just one of the most horrific 
uh, attacks on our way of life. That we're in well, a I'm, democracy. A, I'm a perennial optimist. So I like to think that if we just start talking to one another, um, I think it's possible, but I think we need to start talking to one another and have a real, uh, you know, have an open dialogue with one another. So, yeah, that's, that's for sure. I'm with you there, Jonathan. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Blame Game. This episode is brought to you by Kramer, Dunleavy, and Ratchik, PLLC. Come check us out at kdrpilawyers.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you, and have a great day.